Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock flavoured podcast. We're back with Moorcock again for this show and passing the midpoint of our journey into the history of the Rune Staff with The Sword of the Dawn. This volume dates back to 1968 and was written during Moorcock's heady and hugely productive period that would continue into 69 with the final instalment, The Rune Staff, as well as The Black Corridor and Behold the Man and then build ahead of steam into the early 70s with two Ericos novels published in 1970, the first Corum series, all three in 1971, The Warlord of the Air, also in 71, two more Jerry Cornelius novels in 71 and 72, the backstory of Elric in Elric of Melnibone, the Cal Glogau follow-up Breakfast in the Ruins, and the first of the Dancers at the End of Time trilogy in Alien Heat, also all in 1972, and that's not even an exhaustive list. Andy continued at that pace for several more years. An absolutely astonishing output, all whilst editing New Worlds and hanging out with Hawkwind. He was an absolute machine. As we had such a great time with the Mad God's Amulet, Dave, the creative force behind space rock juggernaut Sonus, has returned to Derry and Tom's and is venturing with me back into the weird science nightmare of tragic millennium Europe to see how Dorian Hawkmoon and his companions fare against the might and depredations of the Dark Empire of Grand Britain. So, recline on a comfortable litter. Don, a brain-invading flesh helmet, and join us as we continue our journey, this time in search of the Sword of the Dawn. <laughs> anyway, here we are, we're back in Derry and Tom's, and I've got Dave with me again. Welcome back, Dave. Good to be here. Thank you, Andy. It's an absolute pleasure to have you back. Now, you've been gigging. How's Usurper of the Universe doing? Because I know if you've been appearing on Doom Charts, and yeah. you've been appearing on other podcasts and spreading the good word of your music. How's things going? Yeah, wow. I mean, it was it was pretty fucking incredible. We got um, voted up to number 80 of the top 100 albums of 2022 by the Doom Charts, mm. and that just blows my freaking mind. I mean, <laughs> holy shit. I mean, you know, I, you know, you like, you look through these things, you're like, oh, I wonder if maybe I'll get like an honorable <laughs> yeah. mention or something, maybe, or, you know, yeah. just to see like, you know, who's doing what. But there I was. I didn't have to go too far in. Uh, holy shit. Yeah, that blew my mind pretty much. Yeah. And we, yeah, we've been gigging. It's been awesome. We're going to play our fifth show, fifth public show ever on March 3rd, which at the time of recording is next Friday with mm. the Spiral Electric and Older Sun, uh, two bands I recommend checking out. Good stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun. Nice. Well, I've got to say, every time you mention a band that you're playing alongside and they've got a band camp page, I go on, I check them out, and I buy it about 45 seconds later because you've been yeah. playing alongside some class acts. Oh, so it's yeah. great to hear. And it's great to hear that the gigging's going well as well. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I it, it is the funnest thing. It is my new uh, new favorite thing to do, which is mm. good because, you know, you want to make a living doing music, uh, gigging is important. Mm. <laughs> so, you know. How long has Usurper of the Universe been out now? Probably a year or so, isn't it? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it had its year anniversary on February 5th of wow. still this month at the time recording. So, wow. yeah, it's just over a year old now. Incredible. Time flies so fucking wow. quickly, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. Any signs yeah. of album three? Oh, more than signs. Yeah, we are actively working on album three. I got about uh, nine ideas, nine uh, kind of 
songs in various uh, stages. So um, it's great. We've been recording drums at uh, our bassist's garage and getting them all uh, getting them all put together. So once that's all done, I'll start writing lyrics. And uh, you know, basically at this point, it's just kind of polishing up the structures and mm. you know, adding the uh, the final bits and bobs. Um, a little bit more editing here and there, but uh, yeah, it's definitely going to be the uh, longest album, mm. and uh, yeah, I'm pretty pretty happy with how it's how it's shaping up. That's the great thing about you know self promotion and things like Bandcamp and digital music and everything else is you're not restricted. I, I remember when bands moved from vinyl to CD, and all of a sudden the restrictions were lifted. And all of a sudden, like, for example, the reissued Killers with Twilight Zone on it, because you were suddenly freed up from the restrictions of two sides of vinyl, unless you wanted to oh, go yeah. the whole hog and, and be really, really expansive and do a double album. So you, I suppose you don't have any of those things holding you back anymore, do you? You can be as expansive as you want. I can, although that being said, I'm also <laughs> I'm also self-limiting. Because, man, I got to mm. tell you, um, I, th- I like a good, like, 40-minute album, you know mm. what I mean? Like, a little after that, it's like, all right, all right, come on. Like, are all these ideas really, like, top-notch? You know what I mean? I, yeah, yeah, I kind of like the, um, you know, I feel like like a full hour is is, is a bit. It's a bit, bit much. But, um, yeah. yeah, I've actually got it structured side A, side B. I'm hoping for this one we'll be able to get vinyl. We'll see. We'll mm, see. That'd be nice. That'd be I, cool. think, I think you are right that the freeing up of timings can actually be a negative thing. I think if you look at certain albums by certain rock giants or metal giants over the years, some of them have definitely been a stretch in terms of quality. Oh, yeah. and some of those tracks would certainly have been B-sides. Oh, yeah. And... Got another whole another 15 minutes to fill. That's, oh, you know... Yeah. And I know that a lot of people really, more. really love things like Book of the Dead by Iron Maiden. That double album, I've got to say, that is... If, if you actually trimmed that down to 40 minutes, you'd have a killer album. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but as it stands, yeah. nobody's editing them. <laughs> oh my god! Them I know. See, that's the thing. I I love me some Iron Maiden, but like at a certain point, they're just like, yeah, why don't we just repeat the chorus eight times? That yeah. seems reasonable. Let's yeah. just keep doing that. We're gonna make this song nine minutes for no reason. If you yeah. got different ideas you're introducing, you know, more like a prog rock sort of thing, then like, yeah, okay, yeah, have it go on for fifteen minutes. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But if it's this the same verse, chorus, verse, chorus, okay, you, we don't need this again. We got it. We got the idea. It just kind of, for me anyway, you know, it's like, okay, on to the next thing. Let's go. Mm. And funnily enough, as we're a Mocock flavored podcast, you would think that Mocock, someone who repeatedly re- repeats the same choruses and verses <laughs> of, <laughs> over and over again over the years to quite some considerable um, yeah. degree, when he's actually released albums and um, deep fix albums are always a tidy 35 minutes. So when it comes to music, Mocock's, you know, pretty good at self editing. Either that or he, he, he can't get enough material out there. I don't know. But. That brings us neatly round in a 180 back to <laughs> Moorcock, because, of course, we're here to talk about... Well, what are we here to talk about? We're back for part three of the History of the Rune Staff, or, or the third instalment of the History of the Rune Staff, which is, of course, The Sword of the Dawn. Now, I've got my copy of The Sword of the Dawn here, and I am, I'm, I've been reading from a Grafton edition, which oh. I think is from the 80s, although the cover art, I think, dates from before that. And the cover art is by Richard Clifton Day, a British a British cover artist. And I've got to say, it's not one of my favourites. 
Yeah, Naked Hawk Moon fighting a tentacle monster. It just doesn't really capture the vibe yeah. of this book. Yeah. I so, mean, at least so far. This is only book one. I haven't... Maybe in book two, it's full of tentacle monsters and, you know, loincloths. I don't know. Yeah. The, know, the book could, one bit could be him naked all the way through, which is, you know, absolutely fine. But I don't know. There's just something about it. You've got the tastefully located tentacle covering his groin. It oh all feels... Yeah, it all looks a little bit um, Austin <laughs> Powers in terms of <laughs> tentacle placement. And yeah, it's not my favourite. I'm I'm not mad yeah. keen on the lizards with the tentacle roughs either. But what are you working from? Luckily for me, I got the classic Bob Haberfield cover, Mayflower yeah. edition. Look at that beautiful oh, freaking yeah. golden glowing sword with a griffin over the mountains. Yeah. Again, not that far in the book. Might not have anything to do with it, but Bob Haberfield never disappoints. This thing is beautiful. Yeah. I love this book cover. Yeah, that is a real belter. And, you know, it's, it's a shame about this Richard Clifton Day cover because the other three covers he did for History of the Rune stuff I think are really good. And his cover for Mad God's Amulet even includes a mutant war jaguar of Asia Communista. Woo! Yeah, which we've got <laughs> to be happy about. And it's, and it's pretty good. Okay, it's not Judas Priest Heavy Metal album cover good, but it's pretty good. It's a pretty good representation. So I think we can give him a pass. And he also, weirdly, I looked him up today, he provided the cover art for Blue Oyster Cult's Cultosaurus Erectus. No shit, I love that album cover. Yeah, so it was a very wow. prolific artist in the 60s and 70s, and on into the 80s. Sadly, no longer with us, died in the 90s, and was also a Yorkshireman. So I think for all of those reasons, we'll wow. give him a pass on this cover. Blue mm. Oyster Cult alone, you, you get a pass and all kinds of kudos for me, and I want it on a shirt, please. Mm. Mm. Also... Last week, through the post, from the Bay of E, I got the first edition UK hardcover with the James Cawthorn cover. Oh, that's cool. I've actually is... got the uh, Cawthorn um, graphic novel like just behind me, mm. uh, which I believe covers parts of this book. Not, yeah. uh, not, not, We haven't quite reached it yet, but yeah. Yeah, I've only got the first Beautiful. one, I think. But this, this, And this was also something else which I, I always really enjoy, is this hardcover is from Surrey County Library in Egham, in Surrey in the UK. And it was last taken out on the 22nd of September, 1979. That's the last stamp this book got. So What a go. shame. And, yeah, a nice little one. And, and at the same time, I also got the first edition of Night of the Swords. Ooh. First hardcover edition, which is a, a, a simple cover, but I, I do kind of like it. It's, uh, it's all right. But, you know, we'll maybe yeah. talk about that one another day. Got that lion-headed entrance to the psychedelic cave yeah. of wonders. That was a that was a cool passage. Yeah, absolutely. Observation, as well. Considering how much Michael Moorcock talks about breeks and britches, right? <laughs> this this book cover, this Richard oh, Clifton Day book cover, actually is pretty consistent in that for all of the talk of britches and breeches, it's extremely uncommon for any Moorcock heroes on book covers to actually be wearing britches or breeches. <laughs> Certainly the case with Michael Whelan and Bron and yep. other people doing Elric stories, very, very few britches. So another point to Jack Garn's Elric, I think, in his green pants. So there you go. Anyway, oh, yeah, but that's additions. Yeah. Long white legs exposed. Yeah. Oh, baby. <laughs> not yeah, a big, not a big way, fan, so. to be yeah. honest. I do like yeah, my Michael either. Whelan, and I love the Michael Whelan oh, Stormbringer yeah. cover. It's one of my favourites, but I wish they'd put trousers on him from time to time. Yeah. Anyway. 
So this is book three, and of course, last time we were here, we were talking about the Mad God's Amulet. And we won't recap all of the Mad God's Amulet. Suffice to say that at the end of the Mad God's Amulet, the Kamarg is under siege by Baron Malidus' evil army of Grand Britannians, and they use the strange machine from Soriandum to whisk it into another dimension, leaving Baron Malidus going, Damn you, Hawk Moon! And shaking his fist at the shimmering, disappearing Kamarg. So this is where we are at this point. And of course, we've got our High History of the Rune Staff introduction to book one, because this follows the same pattern as Mad God's Amulet, in that it's two books, not three. So we're yeah. doing half of this book again in one go. Although we're prepared for that this time, because last time it took us by surprise. But anyway. <laughs> so it says, When Dorian Hawkmoon, last Duke of Colne, ripped the red amulet from the throat of the Mad God and made that powerful thing his own, he returned with Huilam de Verk and Oladan of the Mountains to the Camargue, where Count Brass, his daughter Yzelda, his friend Bogentle the Philosopher, and all their people underwent siege from the hordes of the Dark Empire led by Hawkmoon's old enemy, Baron Malidus of Croydon. So powerful had the Dark Empire grown that it threatened to destroy even the well-protected province of the Camargue. If that happened, it would mean that Malidus would take his elder for his own and slay slowly all the rest, turning the Camargue to a waste of ash. Only by the mighty force released by the ancient machine of the Wraith Folk, which could warp whole areas of time and space, were they saved by shifting into another dimension of the Earth. And so they found sanctuary, Sanctuary in some other Camargue, where the evil and horror of Grand Britain did not exist. But they knew that if ever the crystal machine were destroyed, they would be plunged back into the chaos of their own time and space. For a while they lived in joyful relief at their escape, but gradually Hawkman began to finger his sword and wonder at the fate of his own world. The High History of the Rune Staff. Which is one perspective, but we find out very quickly actually they're all really bored <laughs> yeah they're like at one point count brass is like i wish i could just smash the machine and go out with the fight yeah. these people are not psychologically well yeah we'll, we'll touch on that we kick off with chapter one the last city and i've got to say i have memories of the sword of the dawn and i think laws and i have alluded to it i think i've mentioned it to you before as well on this podcast that my memories of The Sword of the Dawn, and I haven't read it for well over 20 years, are dim, but quite negative. Yeah. In my mind, I think of Sword of the Dawn as one of the weakest of the History of the Runestaff stories and quite hard work. But this is the glorious reread. And I've got to say, Chapter 1 is fucking great. I love Chapter 1. And it kicks off... This first half of Sword of the Dawn is almost exclusively from the point of view of Grand Britain, and the world building is great. So let's yeah. let's work our way through it. We've got chapter one. Let's have a look. So I'm going to read a little bit. It says, uh, The grim riders spurred their battle steeds up the muddy shapes of the hill, coughing as their lungs took in the thick black smoke that rose from the valley. It was evening. The sun was setting, and their grotesque shadows were long. In the twilight, it seemed that gigantic beast-headed creatures rode the horses. Each rider wore a banner, stained by war. Each wore a huge beast mask of jewelled metal and heavy armour of steel, brass and silver, emblazoned with its wearer's device, battered and blooded, and each gauntleted right hand gripped a weapon on which was encrusted the remains of a hundred innocents. The six horsemen reached the top of the hill and dragged their snorting mounts to a halt stabbing their banners into the earth, where they flapped like the wings of great birds of prey in the hot wind from the valley. Wolfmask turned to stare at Flymask, 
Ape glanced at Goat. Rat seemed to grin at Hound, a grin of triumph. The beasts of the Dark Empire, each a warlord of thousands, looked beyond the valley and beyond the hills to the sea, looked back at the blazing city below them where, faintly, they could hear the wails of the slaughtered and the tormented. The sun set, night fell, and the flames burned brighter, reflected in the dark metal of the masks of the Lords of Grand Britain. Oh! That's how you open a power book. card, yeah. Boom. Oh, heavy yeah. riffs throughout, yeah, that Absolutely. is Absolutely. We need brutal. a fucking huge power card there, it's great. And as soon as ah. I read that, I think, it's good to be back. It's good to be back in this world. Because <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. So you've got these yeah. six riders. You've got Baron Malidas, of course, of the Order of the Wolf. You've got Adas Promp of the Hounds. You've got Jarek Nankensine of the Order of the Fly. And you've got Brinal Farnu of the Order of the Rat. For some reason, the ape dude goes unnamed. <laughs> Obviously unimportant. Unlucky <laughs> I forgot about dude. that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's too many to keep dude. track of. But there's another really great, really great paragraph which gives added dimension. It says, The barons of Grand Bretagne, masters of a continent, tacticians and warriors of ferocious courage and skill, careless of their own lives, corrupt of soul and mad of brain, haters of all that was not in decay, wielders of power without morality, Forced without justice, chuckled with gloomy pleasure as they watched the last European city to withstand them crumble and die. It had been an old city. It had been called Athena. So again, some lovely, lovely flavour that really, really adds to these terrible villains. Oh yeah, as they conquer the birthplace of democracy and reason with their Absolutely. madness. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really, really good, and... So Nankin baiting and lightly mocking Melidas because we get, we get this common theme, don't we, that they all are in competition with each other. And King Juan oh, yeah. keeps them in competition with each other. So he's mocking Melidas as the Camargue is the only part of Europe to have escaped their grip. Melidas is steaming and plotting all manner of nasty reprisals once he has our heroes. He says, yes, I shall take you, Zelda. And roughly, it's, <laughs> yeah, he's not going to be gentle. And, he's, nope. and once again, he swears by the rune staff that he shall have these people. He's completely obsessed with them now. And we'll find out later on that King Juan's getting a little bit irritated with his obsession with uh, with the Camargue and the opulence with the Camargue as well. But I just, you know, they're evil villains and they do terrible things, but they've, they've got a really well-drawn identity and this all kind of fleshes it out. It's, it's great. Oh, yeah. That is actually what I've really liked about this first part of the book, without getting too far ahead, but the what we get to actually see of the Dark Empire, of their kind of political structure, of even just more descriptions of, you know, Londra and stuff like that. Mm. Um, it, I actually really enjoyed that part of this uh, this first half of the book because we got, like, little peaks here and there throughout the, the past uh, uh, two, but, you know, I think this, this, this book here in particular kind of gives you a, a, a clearer picture of what uh, they're... Mm daily life is like yeah it's fantastic and i absolutely love that all melidas does all the way through is quietly seethe about <laughs> everything it's he's a miserable fucking, bastard <laughs> it's just brilliant it's brilliant and you know mustache twirling evil villain who was just constantly going yeah it's i just <laughs> love it and then um, so they're they're having their arguments and they're sniping back and forth and then it says there was a sound behind them they turned to peer through the flickering light and saw a canopied litter being borne up the hill by a dozen Athenian prisoners of war who were chained to its poles. 
In the litter lounged the unconventional Shenagar Trot, Count of Sussex. Count Shenagar almost disdained the wearing of a mask at all, and as it was he wore a silver one, scarcely larger than his head, fashioned to resemble, in caricature, his own visage. He belonged to no order, and was tolerated by the King Emperor and his court because of his immense richness and almost superhuman courage in battle. Yet he gave the appearance, in his jewelled robes and lazy manner, of a besotted fool. He, even more than Melidas, had the confidence, such as it was, of the King Emperor Juan, for his advice was almost always excellent. He had plainly heard the last part of the exchange, and spoke banteringly. A dangerous oath to swear, my Lord Baron, said he softly, one that could, by all accounts, have repercussions on he who swears it. I swore the oath with that knowledge, replied Melidas. I shall find them, Shenagar Trot, never fear. I came to remind you, my lords, said Shenagar Trot, that our King Emperor grows impatient to see us, and hear our report that all Europe is now his property. I will ride for Londra instantly, Melidas said, for there I may consult with our sorcerer scientists and discover a means of hunting out my foes. Farewell, my lords. He dragged at his horse's reins, turning the beast and galloping down the hill, watched by his peers. The beast masks moved together in the firelight. His singular mentality could destroy us all, whispered one. What matter? chuckled Shenagar Trot, so long as all is destroyed with us. The answering laughter was wild, ringing from the jewelled helms. It was insane laughter, tinged as much with self-hatred as with hatred of the world, for this was the great power of the lords of the Dark Empire, that they valued nothing on all the earth, no human quality, nothing within or without themselves. The spreading of conquest and desolation, of terror and torment was their staple entertainment, a means of employing their hours until their spans of life were ended. For them, warfare was merely the most satisfactory way of easing their ennui. Whoa. It's just fucking brilliant. It's yeah. great. That chapter instantly hooks me in. Those character sketches for the lesser players still feel quite well drawn. Shenagar Trot will be a bigger character. He's mentioned briefly in previous books, isn't he? As, as being, yeah. He's almost like, um, oh, what's the robot called in Futurama? Um, Bender? The, no, the, the one that's always eating grapes and is shaped oh, like a... Oh, yeah. Oh, like my God. Long. Um, oh, my God. Uh, hedonism bot or something like that. Yeah, hedonism bot. So Shenagar yeah. Trot is like hedonism bot, but they're... There's that line where they're they're tinged. They've got that self hatred as well as hatred of the world. It's brilliant because yeah. it hints at some psychological complexity, in it. and we see it in in this part of the book. There's a level of societal self loathing that they're oh, all yeah. trapped in, and they can only turn it outwards. And it gives them a level of depth. They've gone so far. There's no turning back, and they're self aware. They're fully aware of just how fucking wrong they are. And how wrong-headed they, have a laugh they are. About it. But yeah. you know what? They are. That is what they are. And I suppose thinking about when it was written, the parallels are easy to find. And you know, and even now, I think it's like, at what point does an aggressive culture tip from self-justified, like might is right, through to being so long in a grinding mindset that there's just no longer any way back to a sane position, and any hint of wrongdoing can't possibly even be superficially acknowledged within this system. But deep down in, in their psyche, or, or just the psyche of the ruling power of the time, the wrongness just eats away at their soul. And we see it, it's in the news all the time. You know, you, you didn't need to write this 25 years after World War II for it all to still be current. It's still hugely current. This core of endless 
nonsense where you justify terrible things because it's, well, this is the way things work. Oh, it's, yeah. It's really powerful. And, you know, this this grind of endless war and, and Grand Britannia just so far down that road, they're just poisonous. But, you know, let's not get too political. Eh? <laughs> yeah. We don't so, need to delve too deep into the mask metaphor. That one's pretty, I think, yeah, obvious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's some fun bits with the masks as well as we go along. But meanwhile, in Chapter 2, at the at the transposed Camargue, Count Brass is bored shitless. He's bird watching and wandering around, looking at the familiar yet not so familiar surroundings, this this version of the world where there appears to have been no evidence of any human habitation whatsoever. And yep. he's introspective and he's restless. I think there are references to them thinking, well, you know, should we just go back? This is really boring. There's even references to the townsfolk finding yep. all this too weird. Which I is- have to admit... That's kind of how I felt reading this chapter, too. I was like, oh, get on with it. Yeah, take, take me back to Grand Britain, please. Yeah, this yeah. one was a bit of a slog to get through for me, yeah. personally. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So th- this place is just its just too chill and too good to be true. So they're all bored. You know, the, the, the need, the need, the conflict. So Hawkmoon's got bored, and he's taken to riding the marshes, and he spots a dude while he's out riding the marshes in a red coat. In my copy, which shouldn't be too different to yours, I don't think, because we're both reading from paperbacks around about the same time. On page 15, the very beginning of the page says, uh, Marsh until he was directly below the flamingos. Exactly the same Exact. Brilliant. That's going to that's gonna work out that, really thank handy. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to read from At First Hawkmoon, and then gotcha. I think, as is traditional, I think you should voice Hawkmoon. All right, will do. Okay. So, let's go. At first, Hawkmoon decided that it was probably a villager, snaring duck. But then he realised that if it had been so, the man would have hailed him, at least waved him away so that he would not disturb the fowl. Puzzled, Hawkmoon spurred his horse into the water, swimming it across to the island and onto the marshy ground. The animal's powerful body pushed back through the reeds as it moved, and again Hawkmoon saw a flash of red, became convinced he had seen a man. Ho! Who's there? He received no answer. Instead, the reeds became more agitated as the man began to run through them without caution. Who are you? Hawkmoon cried, and it came to him then that the Dark Empire had broken through at last, that there were men hidden everywhere in the reeds ready to attack Castle Brass. He thundered through the reeds in pursuit of the red jerkin man, saw him clearly now as he flung himself into the lagoon and began to swim for the bank. Stop! But the man swam on. Hawkmoon's horse plunged again into the water and it foamed white. The man was already wading onto the opposite bank, glancing back to see Hawkman was almost upon him, turned right round and drew a bright, slender sword of extraordinary length. But it was not the sword that astonished Hawkman most, it was the impression that the man had no face. The whole of the head beneath the long, fair, dirty hair was blank. Hawkman gasped, drawing his own sword. Was it some alien inhabitant of this world? Hawkman swung himself from his saddle, sword ready, as the horse clambered onto the bank, stood legs astraddle, facing his strange antagonist, Laughed suddenly as he realised the truth. The man was wearing a mask of light leather. The mouth and eyeslits were very thin and could not be distinguished at a distance. Why do you laugh? The masked man asked in a braying voice, his sword on guard. You should not laugh, my friend, for you are about to die. Who are you? I know you for a boaster only. I am a greater swordsman than you. You had best surrender now. I regret I can't accept your word on the quality of my swordsmanship or your own. How is it that such a master of the blade is so poorly attired, for instance? With his sword, he indicated the man's patched red jerkin, 
his trousers and boots of cracked leather. Even his bright sword had no scabbard, but had been drawn from a loop of cord attached to a rope belt on which also dangled a purse that bulged. On the man's fingers were rings of obvious glass and paste, and the flesh of his skin looked grey and unhealthy. The body was tall, but stringy, half-starved by the look of it. A beggar, I'd guess. Where did you steal the sword, beggar? He gasped as the man thrust suddenly, then withdrew. The movement had been incredibly rapid, and Honkman felt a sting on his cheek, put up his hand to his face, and discovered that it bled. Shall I prick you thus to death? sneered the stranger. Put down your heavy sword, and make yourself my prisoner. Good. A worthy opponent after all. You do not know how much I welcome you, my friend. It has been too long since I heard the ring of steel in my ears. And with that he lunged at the masked man. His adversary deftly defended himself with a parry that somehow became a thrust, which Hawkman barely managed to block in time. Feet planted firmly in the marshy ground, neither moved an inch from his position. Both fought skillfully and unheatedly, each recognising in the other a true master of the sword. They fought for an hour, absolutely matched, neither giving nor sustaining a wound, and Hawkman decided on different tactics, began gradually to shift back down the bank towards the water. Thinking that Hawkman was retreating, the masked man seemed to gain confidence, and his sword moved in more rigidly than before, so that Hawkman was forced to exert all his energy to deflect it. Then Hawkman pretended to slip in the mud, going down on one knee. The other sprang forward to thrust, and Hawkman's blade moved rapidly, the flat striking the man's wrist. He yelled, and the sword fell from his hand. Quickly, Hawkman jumped up and placed his boot upon the weapon, his blade at the other's throat. Not a trick worthy of a true swordsman. I am easily bored. I was becoming impatient with the game. Well, what now? Your name? I'll know that first, then see your face, then know your business here, then, and perhaps most important, discover how you came here. My name, you will know. I am Elvarezer Toza. I do know it indeed. Ah, so, it is Elvarezer Toza, or is it Elvazira Toza? I'll get that wrong several times. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. still figuring it out myself. Yeah. Look, famous Grand Britannian playwright. I love that Hartmoon uses a dirty soldier's trick <laughs> to defeat him. <laughs> and that's really cool. So, yes, this is Elvareza. Elvazira? Fucking hell. Elvareza Terza. That's the El- one. That's the one. Elvareza Terza was not the man Hartmoon would have expected to meet if he had been told in advance that he was to encounter Grand Britain's greatest playwright, a writer whose work was admired throughout Europe even by those who in all other ways loathe Grand Bretagne. The author of King Starleen, The Tragedy of Katine and Karna, The Last of the Braldas, Anala, Churchill and Adulf, The Comedy of Steel, and many more, had not been heard of of late, but Hawkman had thought this due to the war. He would have expected Terza to be rich in dress, confident in every way, poised and full of wit. Instead, he found a man who seemed more at ease, with a sword than with words. A vain man, something of a fool, and a popinjay, dressed in rags. And I think it's fair to say that Toza is a massive dick. <laughs> we found out that quite Completely insufferable writer. I wonder if Moorcock's trying to say something here with oh. this character. It wouldn't surprise me if this, in the slightest if Elvarez Toza is an acronym or uh, an anagram <laughs> or, yeah. or something. But, you know, perhaps he's just having a dig. But he takes him to Castle Brass, where they have a chinwag with Deverk and Burgentle, who's quite excited that Terza is there. But we do get some absolute class Deverk action. 
The mask came loose and revealed an emaciated, shifty face sporting a wispy beard which did not hide a weak, receding chin and which was dominated by a long, thin nose. The flesh of the face was unhealthy and bore the marks of a pox. And I do wonder if in the 70s if someone Mocock was reading this thinking, you bastard Mocock. <laughs> and I recall the face, though it was fuller then. Pray what has happened to you, sir, Burgent asked faintly. Are you a refugee seeking escape from your countrymen? Ah, toes aside, darting Burgent a calculating look. Perhaps. Would you have a glass of wine, sir? My encounter with your military friend here has left me thirsty, I fear. What? put in Deverk. Have you been fighting? Fighting to kill. I feel that Master Tozer did not come to our Kmarg on an errand of goodwill. I found him skulking in the reeds to the south. I think he comes as a spy. And why should Elvarezza Tova, greatest playwright of the world, wish to spy? The words were delivered by Tozer in a disdainful tone, yet somehow lacked conviction. Bargentle bit his lip and tugged a bell rope for a servant. That's for you to tell us, sir, Willem de Verk said with some amusement in his voice. He coughed ostentatiously. <coughs> Forgive me. A slight chill, I think. This castle is full of drafts. <laughs> and I'd wish the same for myself, Tozer said, if a draft could be found. He looked at them expectantly. A draft to help us forget the draft, if you understand me? A draft? Yes, yes, said Bargentle hastily, intent to the servant who had entered. A jug of wine for our guest, he requested. And would you eat, Master Tozer? I would eat the bread of Babel and the meat of Marakan. Tozer said dreamily, for all such fruits fools supply, are merely... We could offer some cheese at this hour, said Deverk sardonically. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love Deverk. Welcome back, Deverk, and never change. <laughs> never, ever change. So Tozer gets pissed and tells them that he came to the Kamark by the power of his mind. Power he learned from a philosopher in the valleys of Yell. So Yell is described as the southwest province of Gran Bretagne, which at first you could think could be maybe Dorset, Cornwall, where, um, but the mention of valleys suggests Wales, and we find out later on it's, it's Wales. So mm. Tuz is a bit of a knob, answers all questions through references to and quotes from his own plays, and he lets slip that the old philosopher in Yell tinkered with his machines and engines and created some rings. So he gives himself away fairly quickly, want the power of his mind at all, he's a lion tosser, and the warrior in Jet and Gold turns up just to underline that and bullies him. <laughs> bullies him into handing over a, a crystal ring. And we learn that the crystal ring was made from the same crystal as the machine from Soriandum of the Wraith Folk. And it was made, made by Mygan of Chlandar. So definitely Welsh. In the Chlandar Valley. So a mission to Grand Britannia is on the cards. Tozer is a goof, but he's given him a mission. So he's served his purpose. Yeah. And then we get a really nice chapter, chapter four, and this is all from Flana's perspective. Flana Mikozavar, who is, is it King Juan's cousin or sister? I can't remember. I've already forgotten. But she's Cousin, type, I believe. Yeah, she's type of King Juan. She's got royal blood, and she is knocking about at a concert with various other of the great and good. Well, I say the great and good. They're not good, have they? The Hyperloy of Grand Britain are all at this concert. And let's have a look. So is that the concert of Fl Flana Mikosovar, Countess of Canbury? And of course we know that Azravak Mikosovar, Hawkmoon killed him, didn't he? In in the Mad God's Amulet. Indeed he yeah. did. Yeah. Countess of Canbury adjusted her mask of spun gold and glanced absently about her, seeing the rest of the audience only as a mass of gorgeous colours. The orchestra in the centre of the ballroom played a wild, complex melody, 
one of the later works of Grand Britain's last great musician, London Jean, who had died two centuries earlier. The Countess's mask was that of an ornate heron, its eyes faceted with a thousand fragments of rare jewels. Her heavy gown was of luminous brocade that changed its many colours as the light varied. She was Azravak Mikozovar's widow, he who had died under Dorian Hartman's blade at the First Battle of the Camargue, the Muscovian renegade who had formed the Vulture Legion to fight on the European mainland, and whose slogan had been, Death to Life, was not mourned by Flanner of Cambury, and she bore no grudge against his killer. He had been her twelfth husband, after all, and the fierce insanity of the blood-lover had served her pleasure enough long before he set off to make war on the Camargue. Since then, she had had several lovers, and her memory of Azravak Mikozovar was as cloudy as all her other memories of men, for Flana was an interned creature who barely distinguished between one person and another. We find that she, her habit is to have multiple lovers. She's been married dozens of times. We even find out she's been married to Melidas, although she barely remembers the divorce. <laughs> you know what, that's the way to live, isn't it? Well, let's have some of that. But she sees Melidas and Tarragon of the Palace of Time and Baron Kalen, the guy who put the jewel in Hawkman's skull. They're all having something of conflap at this concert, and she's a little bit suspicious as to what this is all about, because she knows that Melidas normally avoids Tarragon, but we find out in Chapter mm-hmm. 5 why. Tarragon married Melidas' <laughs> sister, and he's not happy about it. And he might also be pissed off that Tarragon has got a really fucking rad mask because we get oh, yeah. a description of Tarragon's mask. It's pretty cool. He wondered why Melidas would approach him thus when it was well known that Melidas was profoundly jealous of Tarragon's having won his sister's affections. The huge mask lifted a little superciliously. It was constructed of a monstrous clock of gilded and enamelled brass, with numerals of inlaid mother of pearl, and hands of filigreed silver. The box in which hung its pendulum extending to the upper part of Tarragon's broad chest. The box was of some transparent material, like glass of a bluish tint, and through it could be seen the golden pendulum swinging back and forth. The whole clock was balanced by means of a complex mechanism, so as to adjust to Tarragon's every movement. It struck the hour, half hour, and quarter hour, and at midday and midnight chimed the first eight bars of Shedavan's Temporal Antipathies. That's going to be the name of my next album, because that is just too fucking rad. (laughs) Almost as rad as the image of a giant wolf-headed man talking to a snake-headed man and another giant guy with a huge fucking clock for a face, while a lady with a heron head is uh, looking on with suspicion. You know what? It is just one (laughs) massive metal prog opera, isn't it? It's fucking brilliant. Oh my god. With um, psychedelic colors all over the place and weird temporal antipathies, you know, that old jam Yeah. by London John. Yeah. I mean, you'd be annoyed if you sat next to him in a theater or something for a couple of hours. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, <laughs> fuck it. It's, it's pretty awesome. So, you know, Kalen's there. He and Tarragon are competing with each other and teasing details of what they're working on. Tarragon, naturally, is working on time travel. Kalen is working on an engine to move ships at great pace and speed so they can spread their invasion around the globe. So they're busy beavering away in the Palace of Time. And Melidas, he really digs the time travel idea, doesn't he? Because, you know, he wants to go back and try and stop the Camargue getting away. He's obsessed with this at the moment. But Tarragon's playing hard to get because King Juan, as we mentioned before, keeps them all in competition with each other. 
Belidus can only access Tarragon's research or have it shared with him if King Juan says, you know what, you guys play nicely together. So the power keeping the inner circle in acute competition with each other is something else we see quite frequently. You know, that, that's definitely a feature in certain British governments that we've had in recent years where it's almost like they are fiefdoms. All the government departments are fiefdoms and they all compete for resources and for the attention of the, the man or woman at the top. Yeah. Mm. And speaking of the man or woman at the top, in Chapter 6, Melidas gets an audience with King Juan. And this is another fun chapter because he's got this audience with King Juan and he gets kept waiting past his allotted time. This is another example where we get we get inside Melidas' head and listen to him fume. <laughs> and at this point, he's just fuming about being kept waiting uh, by the boss. And again, there's lots of great detail here. It's really flavorful, the description of the 50 Mantis warriors outside the huge doors. And when he does get in, he's even more miffed to find out the reason he's been kept waiting is Shenagar Trot was in there ahead of him in line, and he's been having a real good chinwag with King Juan about his mission. And he's been commissioned by the King, the Emperor King to carry out something, and he's pretty high on himself over it. Mm, what will that be, I wonder? We don't find out in this book, but I'm sure we'll find out in book two. So Malai just gets to talk to Juan anyway, but it just does not go down how he wanted it to because he essentially gets a ticking off <laughs> for, for being too obsessed with the Camargue. Malidus is super, super miffed now because he's like, why why isn't King Juan listening to me? Why does nobody else recognise that the Camargue is such a massive threat? And it's cool because it works on two levels. One is... He is overly obsessed with the Camargue and he is overly obsessed with revenge and everything else and it is consuming him and making him an idiot. But on the other hand, he's right because we know that these people are the heroes. So Melidus repeatedly gets to the right conclusion for the wrong reasons. Yeah, and you uh, get we- to really peek inside the you know the, the paranoia that you know Morcox talked about with the uh, with these agents of the Dark Empire, and you really mm. get to see the um, you know the mechanisms kind of twisting in Meliadus's head as uh, he's wondering, oh, is everybody against me? Is everybody mocking me? And all this you know crazy neuroticism that's going yeah. on there. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's and we'll see we'll see other examples of that even just as we go along in the next few chapters how his obsessions get him to the right conclusion for the wrong reasons. Or to the right place, but for the wrong reasons. Anyway, Juan is like, you know what? Forget the Macamag. I'm sick of hearing about it. The descriptions of King Juan are really good as well. And I know we had, we got them in Jewel of the School, and I don't think we'll repeat them here. But all the stuff about the prehensile tongue is in this milky globe. Um, yeah. He has he has the, the golden voice of a beautiful youth, but he's this wizened little thing in a milky globe that keeps him alive. This little slithering tongue just darting out to press buttons. Yeah. So- yeah. Fucking weird. <laughs> yeah. And Melidas finds out that he's got a new job and it's to babysit two emissaries from Asia Communista who've turned up and nobody can figure out how, how, how they got there. So they must have traveled there due to some strange transport technique that Grand Britain is unaware of. So they want information, they want intelligence about their technology, how they got there. So they want Melidas basically to babysit them and get intelligence on them. And Melidus's thought process about all of this is quite amusing. Baron Melidus could still not rid himself of the feeling that his King Emperor had lost his trust in him, that King Juan was deliberately finding means of curtailing his own schemes regarding the inhabitants of Castle Brass. True, the King had made a convincing case for Melidus's need to involve himself the strange emissaries from Asia Communista, 
had even flattered him by hinting that only Miletus could deal with the problem, and would have the opportunity later of becoming not only the first warrior of Europe, but also paramount warlord of Asia Communista. But Miletus' interest in Asia Communista was not as great as his interest in Castlebrass, for he felt that there was evidence for believing Castlebrass to be a considerable threat to the Dark Empire, whereas his monarch had no evidence to suppose that Asia Communista threatened them. Clad in his finest mask and most sumptuous garments, Miletus made his way through the shining corridors of the palace towards the hall where the previous day he had sought out his brother-in-law Tarragon. Now the hall was to be used for another reception, to welcome, with due ceremony, the visitors from the east. So Miletus is pretty high on himself now because he's essentially King Huan's representative in this um, attempt to engage with these two emissaries. And we found out his full raft of titles as well, which is pretty cool. I am the Baron Miletus of Croydon, Grand Constable of the Order of the Wolf, Paramount Warlord of Europe, Deputy to the Immortal King Emperor Juan Eighteenth, Ruler of Grand Britain, of Europe, and all the realms of the Middle Sea, Grand Constable of the Order of the Mantis, Controller of Destinies, Moulder of Histories, Feared and Powerful Prince of All. Yeah, they've all got nice titles, but these emissaries, they are the Lord Commissar Kao Shalangat, hereditary representative of the President Emperor Yongman Shen of Asia Communista and Prince-elect of the Hordes of the Sun. The other is the Lord Commissar Orkai Hyong Foon, hereditary representative of the President Emperor Yongman Shen of Asia Communista and Prince-elect of the Hordes of the Sun. And they wear giant helmets and he thinks they might be automatons. Can't quite figure out what they are. And they are deeply unimpressed with all of the entertainment that they put on. They're a tough crowd to entertain. Even, even when they entertain them thus. (laughs) At length, he rose and clapped his hands. Enough of this. Dismiss these entertainers. Let us have more exotic sport. And he relaxed a trifle as the sexual gymnasts entered the hall and began to perform for the delight of the depraved appetites of the Dark Empire. He chuckled, recognising some of the performers, pointing them out to his guests. There's once who was a prince of Magyaria. And those two, the twins, were the sisters of a king in Turkey. I captured the blonde one there myself. And the stallion, you see, in a Bulgarian stable. Many of them I personally trained. But though the entertainment relaxed the tortured nerves of Baron Miletus of Croydon, the emissaries of the President Emperor Young Manchin seemed as unmoved and as taciturn as ever. Yeah. Just some casual bestiality going yeah, on. You know, just stick the old Animal Farm VHS tape on and they're, they're still not even impressed with that. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's a deep cut, isn't it? Yeah, I, uh, I was like, oh fuck, when I read that one, <laughs> yeah. I have a little, uh, little chuckle at that image. Holy shit! Yeah, yep. But he introduces the luminaries, sorry, the emissaries, to all of the lots of the luminaries of Grand Britain, including Flanner, and Flanner straight away is like, ooh, they're tall, ooh, they're broad, and she's quite impressed by their height and girth, and is instantly interested in them. But she's even more intrigued, because essentially, they ignore her and brush her off. And at that point, she's hooked. Flana, Mikozovar, needs a piece of these emissaries. And there's another wonderful Melidus bit here. We're on to chapter 8, and Melidus can't sleep. He's so consumed with his irritation for everything that's going on around him, he can't sleep. So he goes off to the Palace of Time, and of course his manner of travel is appropriately over the top. It's a litter 
spawn by naked slave girls with rouged bodies because you can't handle slave girls without rouged bodies. And <laughs> Miletus' litter arrived at last before a relatively small set of bronze doors and mechanical men sprang forward to block the way. A mechanical voice cutting through the din of the clocks to demand, Who visits Lord Tarragorm at the Passel of Time? The Passel of Time? Who visits Lord Tarragorm at the Palace of Time? Baron Lydus, his brother-in-law, with the permission of the King Emperor, replied the Baron, forced to shout. The doors remained closed for a good deal longer, Melidas thought, than they should have done, then opened slowly to admit the litter. Now they passed into a hall with curved walls of metal like the base of a clock, and the noise increased. The hall was full of ticks and clacks and whirs and booms and thumps and swishes and clangs, and, had not the Baron's head been encased in its wolf helm, he would have pressed his hands to his ears. As it was, he began to be convinced that shortly he would become deaf. And when I read that, I thought, oh yeah, he'll have his helmet on again. And I just got this image of him jumping out of bed, jumping into his litter and being carried away to the Palace of Time in like his pyjamas and dressing gown, but with, with a wolf mask on. It's just such <laughs> a fucking brilliant image, like, you know, early hours of the morning. But Tarragorm now seems happy to show off his science projects. And Kaelin is there too. And I love this chapter because the whole thing is like the Grand Bretagne version of Q's laboratory from a James Bond film. Because you've got attendants blowing up in puffs of green smoke in the background as Kale and Tarragama Melidas just mildly bicker in the foreground. And all these crazy things are going on. And Poor Kalen, like, he just keeps trying to talk about his cool engine and Melidas no, doesn't have any of it. He's like, tell me more about the time machine. Yeah. <laughs> just, just eventually just wanders off to yeah. like, oh, I'm going to go back, work on my engine, I'll show you guys. Yeah, nobody's interested. Even as Melidas watched, there would become a, there would be a flash of purple light from one part of the hall, a shower of green sparks from another, a gout of scarlet smoke from elsewhere. He saw a black machine crumble to dust, and its attendant cough tumble forward into the dust and vanish. And what was that? Came a laconic voice from nearby. Melidas turned to see Kaelin of Vital, chief scientist to the King Emperor, also visiting Tarragon. An experiment in accelerated time, said Tarragon. We can create the process, but we cannot control it. Nothing so far has worked. See there, he pointed to a large ovoid machine of yellow glassy substance. That creates the opposite effect and again, unfortunately, cannot be controlled. That man you see beside it, he indicated what Melidas had taken to be a lifelike statue, some mechanical figure from a clock being repaired, has been frozen thus for weeks. So it's... it's this massive just palace of madness, of stuff going on, of machines and crazy experiments. Melidas now learns of Toza for the first time, because they say that Toza was brought to them because he'd said that he could do these things by the power of his mind, and then he just buggered off. So that he also knows of Maigal and Hlan of Hlanda, and determines that he's going to have to find him, setting himself and our heroes, of course, on an ultimate collision course. But he can't do it yet because he's still got a nursemaid, these bloody emissaries. And then we get this really lovely interlude. Again, back at Castle Brass. And I think this is the first time, maybe the first and only time, you ever just get a little passage where Count Brass and Oladan are having a conversation. Yeah. Don't, don't think it's ever repeated. I don't even remember if they've said one word to each other for like the past few books. Yeah. It's very short, so let's read it. You could be Count Brass. How about that? <laughs> All right. All right. At Castle Brass, in the courtyard, Count Brass and Oladan of the Bulgar Mountains straddled their horned horses and rode out through the red-roofed town and away to the fens, 
as was their habit now, every morning. Count Brass had lost some of his brooding manner and had begun to desire company again since the visit of the warrior in Jet and Gold. Elva Rezatorza was held captive in a suite of rooms in one of the towers, and had seemed content when Burgentle had given him supplies of paper, pens and ink, and told him to earn his keep with a play, promising him an appreciative, if small, audience. I wonder how Hawkmoon fares, he said as they rode together in pleasurable companionship. I regret that I did not draw the straw that would have enabled me to accompany him. I too, said Aladan. Deverk was lucky. A shame there were only two rings that could be used, Tozas and the Warriors. If they return with the rest, then we'll all be able to make war on the Dark Empire. It was a dangerous idea, friend Oladan, to suggest, as the warriors suggested, that they visit Grand Bretagne itself and try to discover Mygan of Landar and Yell. I've heard it said that it's often safer to dwell in the lion's lair than outside it. Safer still to live in a land where there are no lions. Well, I hope the lion does not devour them. That's all, Count Brass. It may be perverse of me, but I still envy him his opportunity. I have a feeling that we shall not long have to put up with this in action, for it seems to me that our security is threatened from not one quarter, but many. It is not a possibility that worries me over much, but I fear for Yazelda, Bowgentle, and the ordinary folk of the town, for they have no relish for the sort of activity we enjoy. The two men rode on to the sea, enjoying the solitude and at the same time yearning for the din and the action of battle. Count Brass began to wonder if it not worth smashing the crystal device that was their security, plunging Castle Brass back into the world they had left and making a fight of it, even though there was no chance of defeating the hordes of the Dark Empire. Quite a nice, nice little passage, that. I like the idea that Oladan and Count Brass, out of boredom, have taken to just taking, taking rides together every morning. It's quite lovely. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Chapter 10, Melidas is giving the emissaries a tour of Lundra from the air, aboard an ornithopter, and again, you're right earlier on. This, you said earlier on there's some really, really fantastic detail about the city, the blood red river, the gleaming colours of all varieties that yeah. clash, and some t- and, and in some ways make no sense. You've got the palace connected time. tubes. Yeah, like, there's no like, like roads. There's a, it's just they like don't like going outside. Everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And there's the reference as well to um, the quarter of the unmasked, where the scum of the city live, unmasked. Yeah, there's lots and lots of lovely detail in here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the dome of the huge theatre where the players will perform the Temple of the Wolf. Yeah, it's all good stuff. Now Malidus drops them off at the quarters after a long day and bumps into Flanner again. So Flanner has got a little bit of an obsession with these emissaries now. She's got the serious horn for them. So she invites <laughs> Melidas back to her quarters for Nookie. And so he goes back for Nookie, and all he does is whinge about his rubbish job. It's <laughs> yep. fucking brilliant. You know, they the get down to it. He just whinges about his job while he's at it, just going, uh, uh, oh, I hate my job. Oh, I hate the king. And falls asleep. So she's like, all oh, right, thank God that's over. Puts a dressing <laughs> gown on, a mask on, and sneaks back to their quarters. And the Mantis guards don't stand in her way. Because, of course, she's royal, isn't she? But i got to say, Chapter 12 is incredibly amusing to me. It's incredibly amusing. We're going to have to read this. And at the risk of getting saucy, I'm going to be flanner. But th- <laughs> this, this is kind of wonderful. Moonlight alone illuminated the room, falling on a bed in which a figure stared, showing her the discarded ornaments, armour and mask of the man who lay there. She moved closer. My lord, she whispered. Suddenly the figure shot up in the bed and she saw his startled face, saw his hands fly up to cover his features, and she gasped in recognition. 
I know you. Who are you? He leapt from beneath the silken sheets, talked in the moonlight, ran forward to seize her. A woman. Aye, and you are a man. She laughed softly. Not a giant at all, though of goodly height. Your mask and armour made you seem more than a foot taller. What do you want? I sought to entertain you, sir, and be entertained, but I am disappointed, for I believed you to be some creature other than human. Now I know you to be the man I saw in the throne room two years ago. The man Malidas brought here before the King Emperor. So you were there that day? His grip tightened on her, and his hand rose to yank off her mask and cover her mouth. She nibbled the fingers, stroked the muscle of the other arm. The hand on her mouth relaxed. Who are you? Do others know? I am Flana Makozovar, Countess of Canbury. None suspects you, daring German. And I will not call in the guards, if that is what you expect, for I have no interest in politics and no sympathy with Malidas. Indeed, I am grateful to you, for you rid me of a troublesome spouse. You are Makosevar's widow. I am. And you, I knew immediately by the black jewel in your forehead, which you sought to hide when I entered. You are Duke Dorian Hartmann von Kolm, here in disguise, no doubt, to learn the secrets of your enemies. I believe I shall have to kill you, madam. I have no intention of betraying you, Duke Dorian, at least not at once. I came to offer myself for your pleasure, that is all. You have rid me of my mask. Now you may rid me of the rest of my garb. Madam, I cannot. <laughs> I am married. As am I. I have been married countless times. Uh, madam, I, I cannot. There was a sound, and they both turned. The door separating the apartments opened, and there stood a gaunt, good-looking man, who coughed a little ostentatiously, then bowed. He, too, was completely naked. <laughs> My friend, madam, said Huillen de Verc, is of a somewhat rigid moral disposition. However, if I can assist... She moved towards him, looking him up and down. You seem a healthy fellow, she said. He turned his eyes away. Ah, madam, it is kind of you to say so, but I am not, not a well man. On the other hand, he reached out and took her shoulder, guiding her into his chamber. I will do what little I can to please you before this failing heart gives up on me. The door closed, leaving Hawkmoon trembling. Just fucking quality Deverk action. Verging on <laughs> confessions of a window cleaner level. Action. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how this reference will work for a man from California, but this makes me think if we briefly skip onto Lord Shark's ostentatious couch to talk about casting, this leads me to think that in this situation, only Robin Asquith could play Willem de Verk. But I will take your word for it. I have, have no idea. <laughs> there, there was a series of films in the 70s called Confessions of a Window Cleaner, Confessions of a Driving Instructor, Confessions of etc. And essentially, yeah. it was a British actor called Robin Asquith appeared in all of them as a cheeky chappy who was always managing to fall in bed with whoever was delivering milk to, whoever's window is cleaning, <laughs> whoever, you know, driving instructor. And the women in those films were all British actresses who went on to be really well-known and beloved actors on British television. And they were all in those films in their underwear, rolling around with Robin Asquith in soap suds. And <laughs> they weren't quite even soft porn. They were just silly titillation comedies. But when I read this, I just instantly thought, Confessions of a French mercenary. 
It's I can just... help you with that, madam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's... Uh, I've got to say, what was Hawkmoon's plan here? And what was their plan coming dressed as emissaries anyway? It all seems a little bit flimsy to me. Yeah, while... I mean, they're just walking around basically on stilts with, like, giant kiss boots and huge helmets to <laughs> seem not quite human like they're these giant uh people yeah that was a little weird i was like huh i honestly wasn't expecting that reveal because it just seems kind of silly really but yeah <laughs> there you go yeah it's it's brilliant really and the, the fact that there are mantis guards on the other side of this door and hartman and deverka just naked under silk sheets just going oh we'll right. be all right well, I mean, we only brought, you know, our yeah. disguises, so yeah. we're just totally, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it was, it was quite a tiring yeah. day. I'm sure no one will come in yep. anywhere. It, next month, so Hartman basically just frets all night about about how they're going to get out of this one. Yep. Devert Meanwhile. Gets, yeah. Devert gets going next for morning, it. and you know what? He's got his end away. So nothing ventured, nothing gained, I suppose. And Devert's pretty pleased with himself the next morning, too. It's got to be said. And Flana is well pleased with Deverk as well, to the point where um, she kits him out with some fancy clobber and vulture masks, care of her dead husband, and a fancy schmancy ornithopter so they can fly to Wales. So it all worked out nicely. Yeah. Not so for Meliadas. Not so much for Meliadas, though, <laughs> sadly. Bless him. Because chapter 13 is basically him getting a proper bollocking off King Juan for the second time in about four chapters. He's <laughs> getting carpeted by Juan because the emissaries have disappeared and he was supposed to be looking after him. Six mantis guards are dead by means unknown, although we know that Flana did him in because um, although she's proven to be very handy for him, she's also a murderous Grand Britannian and she's got absolutely no qualms whatsoever about killing her own people. So Juan tasks him to find the emissaries and... This is another example of Melidas getting to the right conclusion stroke location for the wrong reasons. Because Melidas has got other ideas, and he's like, you know what, I'm a bit down on King Juan. I'm not going to do what he says. I'm off to yell to find out what the secret of this Mygar bloke is. You know, at the end of the day, the book needs to progress. So, once again, everybody's heading to the same place, if not for the entire right reasons. But there's also a nice little bit, once again, of Melidas's thought processes. He says, Now he hated his king emperor. Now he loathed the creature who had humiliated him so, thwarted him so, insulted him so. King Juan was a fool not to realise the potential danger offered by Castle Brass. Such a fool is not fit to reign, nor fit to command slaves, let alone Baron Melidas, Grand Constable of the Order of the Wolf. Melidas would not listen to King Juan's stupid orders, would do what he thought best, and if the king emperor objected, he would defy him. A little later, Melidas left his palace on horseback. He rode at the head of twenty men, twenty hand-picked men whom he could trust to follow him anywhere, even to yell. Sedition, Melidas. Seditious thoughts. Treasonous thoughts. Anyway. Chapter 14. We're 14 chapters in and we get our first fight. Wow. Amazing. It's true. It's just been balls and orgies and it's, it's uh, been architecture. Yeah, it's been architecture, politics. Okay. Confessions of a French mercenary. Yep. But it's been great. I'm having a great time with this book. Yeah, All the Grand Bretagne stuff is absolutely wonderful. And in a way, now we've got to that point where we're entering into the travelogue, the traditional 
Mocock Hero travelogue section. Here it goes. Yeah, and and whilst I like some of this stuff, I like I like the crazy city in Wales and all that stuff. I'm a bit saddened by the fact that we've we've moved to this point now. And yeah, I sense that book two of this will be well. We we find out they essentially get a quest. Yeah, at the end of this. But let's get to it. So they're in Yell. They're on foot, having abandoned the Ornithopter and hid it because Deverk is actually quite smitten with Flanner, and he doesn't want the Ornithopter to be found, and he doesn't want anybody to know that she assisted them. So they get attacked by weird beaked creatures that Deverk say are products of the tragic millennium, as Yell, Wales, got the impact worse than any other area of Grand Bretagne. And because it's inconvenient and it provides a little bit of a, a conundrum or a, a problem to solve for our characters. One of them makes off with part of Deverk's jerkin that contained a map that Elvareza Toza gave them to find Mygal of Glandard Cave. So they give chase. Hawkmoon cursed, sheathed his sword and frowned. There's nothing for it. We must trail the beast. It was slightly wounded and might have left a trail of blood. Perhaps it has dropped the map on its way back to its lair. Failing that, we shall have to follow it all the way to where it lives and find a means of getting back our map when we arrive. Devak frowned. Is it worth it? Can we not remember where we are bound? Not well enough. Come, Devak. Hartman began to clamber over the sharp rocks in the direction in which the creatures had disappeared, and Devak came reluctantly after him. Luckily the sky was clear and the moon bright, and Hartman at last saw some gleaming patches on the rock that must have been blood. A bit further on he saw more patches. This way, Devak. His friend sighed, shrugged, and followed. <sighs> the search went on until dawn, when Hawkman lost the trail and shook his head. They were high up on a mountain slope with a good view of two valleys below them. He ran his hand through his blonde hair and he sighed. <sighs> no sign of the thing, and yet I was sure. Now we are worse off, Devak said absently, rubbing his weary eyes. No map, and no longer even on our original trail. I'm sorry, Deverk. I thought it the best plan. Hartman's shoulders sagged, then suddenly he brightened and pointed. There! I saw something moving. Come on! And he was sprinting along the shelf of rock to disappear from Deverk's sight. Deverk heard a shout of surprise and then a sudden silence. The Frenchman drew his sword and followed after his friend, wondering what he had met with. Then he saw the source of Hartman's amazement. There, far below in a valley, was a city all made of metal, with shiny surfaces of red, Gold, orange, blue and green, with carving metal roadways and sharp metal towers. It was plain to see, even from here, that the city was deserted and falling to pieces, with rusting walls and adornments. Hawkman stood looking down at it. He pointed. There was their antagonist of the night before, sliding down the rocky sides of the mountain towards the city. That must be where he lives. I like not to follow him down there. There could be poison air, the air that makes your flesh crumple from your face, that causes vomiting. And death. The poison air does not exist anymore, Deverk, and you know it. It only lasts for a while and then disappears. Surely there has been no poison air here for centuries. He began to clamber down the mountain in pursuit of his foe, still clutched the piece of jerkin containing Tarza's map. Oh, very well. Let's seek death together. And once again, he began to follow in his friend's wake. You are a wild, impatient gentleman, Duke von Kohn. And... Basically, they catch up with it and kill it. They're, they're set a conundrum, and it's solved within the space of two pages. And it's, <laughs> it's, like, kind of pointless. But, yep. you know, 
we're, we're at that point now in a Mocock book where he's on day two of his speed fugue and things are starting to speed up. And it's a little bit disappointing, but you know what? I expected this from chapter one. So the fact that we got these 13 or 14 really cool chapters of world building and yeah. delicious Melidus whinging has been yep. a major bonus. So I'm just I'm just having to adjust my expectations now. And it's still good. You know, this this city, it's it's very, very Mocock, a throwaway description of a strange, weird city. There is something coming up though that well, we'll we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So they head to a promising looking tower, and Deverk explains that this place was built just before the tragic millennium began, and it was a place of science and research. And as it happens, this tower's all beat up, but it does give them a view of the city so they can see 20 uh, wolf-masked soldiers riding in, which is convenient. So they know that 20 Grand Britannians have arrived in town, and so they decide to hightail it to the Hlandar Valley marked on the map to find Margar's cave, but not before de Verk grabs something. Some distance away on the opposite side of the city from the one which they had entered could be seen a line of horsemen in the helmets and armour of Dark Empire troops. It was obvious what they were, but they could make out no details from this height. My guess is that Melianus leads them. He cannot know exactly where Mygan is, but he can have discovered that Tozer was in the city at some time, and he'll have trackers with him who will soon discover Mygan's cave. We cannot afford to rest here now, Deverk. We must press on at once. Deverk nodded. A shame. He stooped and picked up a small object he had seen on the floor, placing it in his tattered jerkin. I think I recognise this. What is it? It could be one of the charges used for the old guns they used. If so, it will be useful. But you have no old gun. One does not always need one, said de Verk mysteriously. So two things there. One is I've been calling him Mygar of Landar, I think. Or have I been calling him Mygan? I don't I know. I think we'd say gun. I think we'd say Mygan. All right, that's cool. Um, you know, it wouldn't be unusual to mispronounce shit on this podcast anyway when it comes to Mokok, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So it's Mygan of Landar, isn't it? But the other thing is... This is one of the few, or maybe the only time, we see something in this series that roughly equates to a loose description of something recognisably contemporary Yeah. in the four books. And normally, when there's references to old technology from pre-tragic millennium, it seems like throbbing bridges. And this pre-tragic millennium city is a weird city. But this one little passage in a reference to what appears to be a bullet for a gun, I yeah. think is the one thing that people use to justify having tanks and guns in a Hawkmoon game. I was actually thinking about that, because I remember uh, I remember you mentioning that in a previous episode. Mm, yeah, yeah. That, that Chaosium supplement, Shattered Isle, I think it's called, where mm. half of the book is taken up by a scenario where Apache helicopters, tanks, and rifles are found in an old bunker, and it has helicopters versus ornithopters and it is one of the worst things i've ever read in uh, uh and, and people who listen to this will let me bang on about this before and get bored by it but this is i think the one tiny tiny piece of any of these four books which creates that tiny opening for people to do this and for yeah. that reason i really dislike it <laughs> i really dislike it what i want is weird horn-shaped implements and I want mutant war jaguars, and I want throbbing bridges. I don't want guns and bullets, but, you know, it's there, so we have to take it, sadly. We have to just fucking suck it up. But they get to the valley. So I'll, I'll, this, this whole city thing, they get to the valley, they find the cave, 
There's no Margan in there. Malai just catches up with them. They get cornered after a scrap. Malai just makes the classic villain mistake. He ties them up and gloats. Oh, Malai. Again. 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 Ties them up and gloats and says, Ah, ha, 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 I have you now, Hawkmoon. Doesn't really know what he's going to do with him. I think he wants to prove to King Juan and get his, you know, his, some kind of status back that he was right all along. But they get they have this hour-long fight, sword fight, with these Grand Britannians on this narrow ledge. They get backed into the cave. They end up getting surrounded by swords. They get caught. Where's the Mad God's amulet? Good question. Is its battery flat? Is there a reason plot-wise why he couldn't use it that I forgot about? He must have been in the other dimension too long. I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that's it's just one of those things totally forgotten about, it seems. Yeah. Because yeah. before, you know, he was cleaving Dark Empire soldiers left and right whole hordes of them in the uh, Palace of the Mad God, but now there's 20 here and yeah. they get overpowered. I, I would have appreciated... There's two things here. That I would have appreciated a reference to him being reluctant to use it because it takes something from him, for example, but... It's, it's just apparently forgotten. And the other yep. thing is, um, they get caught by Melidus, and we find out in the following chapter, the last chapter of this book, that they've got the rings on, and all they had to do was rotate it to the left, and they would have been back at the Kamag. So they had an escape, but they didn't use it. Anyway, so they get caught. They're Man. tied up. Melidus' classic villain mistake. He's tied them up. They're in a cave. But it turns out, Mygan was around after all, and he creeps up from the back of the cave and comes into vision, and... Speaks to Hawkmoon. Hawkmoon explains who they are, and he's heard of Hawkmoon. So he frees them. They have a scrap with the guards. Melidus, as usual, is going, Yeah, Hawkmoon! The silly sausage. Uh, but Mygal, now wounded because he joins in the scrap, tells them what to do with the rings they wear to get out of this situation. And it's wonderfully low tech, but. Now, Deverk! Now, Mygan, turn the crystals. It is our only hope of escape. He turned the crystal in his ring, first to the right and then to the left, then six more times to the right, and to the left. Melidus growled and came at him. Hawkman raised his sword to block the blow, and then Melidus had vanished. So had the cavern. So had his friends. He stood alone upon a plain that stretched flat in all directions. It was noon, for a huge sun hung in the sky. The plain was of turf of a kind, that grew close to the ground, and the smell it gave off reminded Hawkman of spring. Where was he? Had Mygan tricked him? Where were the others? Then they began to materialise close by the figure of Mygan Achlandar, lying on the turf and clutching at his worst wound. He was covered in a dozen sword cuts, his lean and face pale and twisted with pain. Hawkman sheathed his sword and sprang towards him. Mygan. Oh, I'm dying, I fear, Hawkman. But at least I've served into the shaping of your destiny, the rune staff. My destiny, what do you mean? And what of the rune staff? I've heard so much of that mysterious artifact in it. No one will tell me exactly how it concerns me. You'll learn when it's time. Meanwhile, suddenly Deverk appeared, staring around him in astonishment. The things work. Thank the rune staff for that. I'd thought us surely slain. You, you must seek. <coughs> Blood spurted from between his teeth, falling down his chin. Hartman cradled his head in his arms. Do not try to speak, my gun. You are badly wounded. We must find help. Perhaps if we return to Castle Brass. Magan shook his head. You cannot. Cannot return? But why? The rings work to bring us here. A turn to the left. No. Once you have shifted in this way, the rings must be reset. How shall we set them? I 
will not tell you. Will not? You mean cannot? No. It was my intention to bring you through space to this land where you must fulfil part of your destiny. You must seek... Oh, the pain! You have tricked us, old man, said Devark. You wish us to play some part in a scheme of your own, but you are dying. We cannot help you now. Tell us how to return to Castle Brass and we shall get someone to doctor you. It was no selfish whim that instructed me to bring you here. It was knowledge of history. I have travelled to many places, visited many eras by means of the rings. I know much. I know what you serve, Hawkmoon, and I know that the time has come for you to venture here. Where? In what time have you deposited us? What is this land called? It seems to consist entirely of this flat plain. But my gun was coughing blood again, and it was plain that death was close. Take my rings, he said, breathing with difficulty. They could be useful, but seek first Narleen and the Sword of the Dawn. That lies to your south. Then turn north, when that's done, and seek the city of Danark and the Runestaff. He coughed again, and his body shook with a great spasm, and the life fled him. Hawkmoon looked up at Deverk. The Runestaff? Are we then in Asia Communista where the thing is supposed to dwell? It would be ironic, considering our earlier ruse, said Deverk, dabbing with his kerchief at a wound on his leg. Perhaps that is where we are. I care not. We are away from that boorish Melidas and his bloodthirsty pack. The sun above is warm. Save for our wounds, we are considerably better off than we might have been. I'm not sure. If Terragorm's experiments are successful, he could find a way through to our K-Mark. I'd rather be there than here. I wonder. No, Hogmoon, do not tamper with it. I'm inclined to believe the old man. Besides, he seemed well disposed towards you. He must have meant you well. Probably, he intended to tell you where this was, give you more explicit directions as to how to reach the places, presuming there were places he spoke of. If we try to work the rings now, there's no telling where we'll find ourselves. Possibly even back in that unpleasant company we left in Mygan's cave. Mm. Perhaps you're wise, Deverk, but what do we do now? First, we do as Mygan said, and remove his rings. Then we head south to that place. What did he call it? Narlene. Could be a person, a thing. South, at any rate, we go to find out if this Narlene be place, person, or thing. Come. He bent beside the corpse of Mygan and Landar and began to strip the crystal rings from his fingers. From what I saw of his cavern, it's almost certain that he found these in the city of Halapandua. The equipment he had in his cave evidently came from there. These must have been one of the inventions of these people before the onset of the tragic millennium. But Hartman was barely listening to him. Instead, he was pointing across the plain. Look! The wind was blowing up. In the distance, something gigantic and reddish-purple came rolling emitting lightnings. Whoa, what a cliffhanger that is. End of book one. Purple lightning cliffhanger. So, Dave, thoughts on book one of Sword of the Dawn? Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is Flana definitely didn't take a shower before bedding Meliodas and then bedding Deverick, so... Oh, my God. Deverick's taking one for the team there. He is French, though. And, mm. you know, no offence to our French friends, but Europeans do tend to be a little bit more flexible when it comes to sexual... <laughs> Washings. <laughs> well, do you ever seen a film called Killing Zoe? No. It's a Roger Avery film. And I'm going to apologise again to all French people, 
because I am taking <laughs> this is probably entirely where I've got my entire sense that French people might be more okay with this, and it all comes from an actor called Jean Hughes Anglade in the film Killing Zoe, which is a Roger Avery film. Roger Avery was one of Quentin Tarantino's earliest writing partners, and he is. I think it's is maybe only directed two films, and mm. it's got Eric Stoltz in it and Julie Delphi and John Hughes Anglade, and it's a really, really good film about uh, a bank job in France, and Eric Stoltz gets caught up with this group who are setting up a bank job. And Martin Kemp, out of Spandau Ballet, is in it as well as one of the gang, when he went through his... Uh, or is it Gary Kemp? can't remember which one. I always get mm. them mixed up. But they did the Craze movie, where they, where they played Ronnie and Reggie Craze, and they went through a period of, oh. of acting in quite decent movies. And I think it's Gary Kemp's in it. And there's this brilliant scene where he's high as a kite and they're in a club. And he's, tell, he's talking to Eric Stoltz and he goes, do you like Viking movies? I fucking love Viking movies. I can't get enough of Viking movies. They're amazing. <laughs> it's really funny. Um, but there's this bit where Eric Stoltz has slept with Julie Delphi and John Hoogan Glad is saying, come on, we've got to go. And Eric Stoltz is saying, I need to get a shower. He says, no, don't. In Paris, it is good to smell like you've been fucking. And that is probably entirely where I've got my idea that this is okay in France, perhaps. I don't there know. There you go. It's probably entirely wrong because it's all based on a film written and directed by an American. <laughs> so that's how shallow I am. But I don't know. Maybe so. But on the other hand, yeah, she probably yep. is. And she's probably covered in Melidas' sweat at that yeah. point. Yeah. As it literally says, they were laying in their sweaty sheets, yeah. basically. And then, yeah. you know, I'm just thinking, poor Divert, that's... Uh, well, anyway, he had himself a good time. It didn't seem to be to bother it, him too much. He didn't seem much. to be overly worried by it, did he? <laughs> so My uh, my germaphobic hang-ups aside. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I honestly, yeah, I, I liked a lot of uh, book one because because actually there wasn't just a bunch of action and questing, we actually got a lot more meaty kind of world building and, and, and seeing more of um, what I thought was really interesting um, facets of Grand Britannian society, which yeah. we, yeah, again, we really didn't get too much of other than like hints here or there in, in any of the other books, but it kind of, you know, I mean, your, your story is sometimes only as good as your villains. Mm. And this this definitely I think did a lot to to flesh them out as a society as a culture, mm. um, and yeah honestly I didn't I didn't miss the uh, the questing and the action all that much um, with all the interesting things that we were getting in that first half of the book here. Yeah, it's good stuff, isn't it? And it's, I think we're fortunate that we've got Devark in this story because I think if we didn't yeah. have our little comedic bits of Devark along for the ride i think it would have been these bits would have been a little bit more dry than they actually were yeah hawk moon is not that interesting of a character of all of uh moorcock's characters as his protagonists his main you know hawk moon's definitely the most kind of standard heroic guy i mean mm. occasionally he has a temper but you know that's really nothing um you know he's he's just a a man of action basically and and mm. so you get that but personality wise not really the most compelling. Yeah. So being that most of book one was focused on Meliadis, who's a totally, you know, neurotic, paranoid, uh, murderous fucking weirdo. <laughs> uh, it was actually, it was actually a much more interesting and compelling read I found. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I really, really dug those first chapters. And I like the fact that it was flicking backwards and forwards between point of view characters as well. I love the PR, the Flana POV stuff is great. Adds yeah. loads more flavor to the, uh, the Grand Britannian court, even though it's through her kind of quite odd perspective, just really good stuff. And we'll see with book two because, and the interesting thing about book two as well is uh, from memory, I think we get to travel to Amarek. Oh, mm, all right. From memory. I can't remember whether it's book two of this or the first half of the rune staff. Gotcha. Maybe it's the first half of the rune staff. We'll find out in book two because my memory is clouded by age and other things. That's but, so good. Yeah. But I, I, I did enjoy it. I think uh, it's front loaded in terms of enjoyment. And the first time I got the sense that there was a bit where it's just, you know what, this is just getting into that filler territory with they get to the valley, they're attacked by beat creatures, and then you just get two or three pages of the beat creatures have attacked. Oh, no, they've got the map. We must chase down the beat creatures. Oh, there it is. I've killed it. I've got the map again. Oh. Yeah, it didn't really add too much. No, back in that territory yeah. again. But you know what? He's he's probably hasn't slept for 40 hours by the time he's reading this part, so we'll, we'll have to give him a yeah. break, won't we? So. Plus, again, you know, pretty pretty big oversight there when you know they do eventually run into the wolf mask, mm. Grand Britannians, and Miliatus. And, and yeah, again, like as you pointed out, what happened to the amulet? Did Hawkmoon just yeah. forget it? Oh, well, it doesn't, it doesn't match with my... Uh, my my multicolored leathers and my giant boots and masks. So I'm just gonna leave it at home. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> and then the rings. Yeah, maybe yeah. so. Maybe there was some kind of incompatibility with the kiss boots or something. Yeah, the emissary kiss boots. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what? Still good, entertaining stuff. I think it's just that when when you get some really great stuff, it makes you want yeah. more more of the really great stuff. I could have yeah. read a 200 page novel about these Grand Britannian knobheads pissing each other off and, and have been thoroughly entertained by it. But I feel like if it was a modern book too, like if it was, you know, if it was written more of the time like that is what we would be getting more of the, you know, kind of political machinations and that kind yeah. of thing back and forth. So honestly it is interesting because I don't know, you know, how much of that was very prevalent in books like this at the time, but mm. it was it was it was nice. I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. I like the I like the flavor stuff about Grand Britannia. It's great and I know that we get a little bit more of Tarragon and the Palace of Time in the Count Brass, the Castle Brass trilogy, which I look forward to reading at some point in the future and find out but a little bit more of that Grand Britannian flavour. But also the Boombeam Rods trilogy, I can't remember which one it is, and they've all been renamed now. I think originally when I read them, it was Dream Thief's Daughter, The Scrailing Tree, and White Wolf's Son. I think they've all got different names now. Gotcha. Yeah, in, uh, they've been reissued in different names. But in one of those, the action goes to Grand Britannia again. Hmm. And I do remember it and enjoying that part of the book, but I can't really remember too many of the details. And at the rate that we get through Mocock on this podcast, it'll probably be twenty thirty-seven before we <laughs> even get to it. But you know, I might pull it off the shelf and see if I can locate those little bits and, and give them a read. Yeah. All right, but cool. That's that's book two. Sorry, no, that's book one done. And I think her, with, with any luck, we will reconvene for book two within the next couple of months. I think we've got a tentative date planned, haven't we? But let's see how the moonbeam roads, the directions that the blowers. But, Dave, thanks once again for dropping into Derry and Tom's and looking at Sword of the Dawn book one. Anytime. Absolute pleasure to be here. Oh. Oh. Oh.
Massive thanks once again to Dave for joining me in Derry and Tom's. Dave, aka Sonus's latest album, Usurper of the Universe, is out on Bandcamp, along with his debut, Worlds Undreamed Of. Get on there, check them out, and if you're in California, get on down and see them live, and follow Dave on Twitter and Instagram at the handle at Sonus underscore rocks. I'll also put the links in the show notes. Thanks as always to our patrons. First, those without tear. Anthony Paconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster, and Sebastian Weetabix. And to our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Jim Kirkland, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Lee Gary, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Menion, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, Scott Butler, Simon Perrins, Tony Malazzo, Ray Otis, Jim Knight, and, new to the Don Blass, Harvey Faulkner Aston. Harvey dropped me a line to say, Hi Andy, thanks to you and Phil for providing some entertaining listening over the last few years. I'm Cheltenham based, but I've hazy memories of drinking in the St John in Hesel Road in Hull. We had a friend that used to live there in a small terraced house at the base of the Humbrol factory chimney stack. At least, that's what it felt like. I've known about Mocock for years, but was a fan of Hawkwind in the late 70s and early 80s, and still enjoy their music. Managed to see them at Cheltenham Town Hall once, a long time ago. I'm reading Ill Met in Lankmar, but checking out my Mocock stash I can see we have Phoenix in Obsidian on the shelf, so I think the choice has been made. Looking forward to listening to the next episode. Thanks Harvey. I actually remember watching the Humbrol factory burn down. It was a massive blaze that lit up the night sky across Hull. Heady days. On the subject of Phoenix in Obsidian, Phil and I read that for our next episode together when we were in Barmouth, so that'll be hitting the airwave soonish with any luck. At some point, though, we must look at Fritz Leiber. And, of course, thanks to our crafty Jugaderos, Alexander Harris, Ian Stead, Loz, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Toby White, Tom Murphy, Mark Hebden, Graham Holden and Jason Connolly. And, finally, eternal thanks to our patron demons, Andy Darby, Clarky the Cruel, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Gwen Barlow, Imria, Janie Stim, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Liam Jay, Miles Reed Lobato, Mark Main, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, David Lee, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last but of course never least, Robert McMillan. But that's enough yakking. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruinsoutlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. Recently relaunched, there's BITR Breakfast in the Ruins Radio. You can find that on Radio Garden. And we have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads. <laughs>